Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Scripture reading this morning is again going to be Hebrews chapter 5, beginning at verse 11 and reading through the 12th verse of chapter 6. As I said last Sunday, this is one passage. It's, it's marked off by the author's use of, of sluggish in verse 11 and is re- returned to that word again in verse 12 of chapter 6. But it's uh, more than we can handle in a single week, and so we're dividing it up into sections. And our focus this morning is going to be on the middle section, verses 3 through 9. Uh, but that we might hear those verses in context, I'm going to read the entire passage. If you're using one of the church's pew Bibles, you will find these verses beginning on page 1003. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning at verse 11. This is the very Word of God. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. The land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. But we speak this way, yet in your case, beloved, we are sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for His sake in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray asking for His blessing upon the reading and the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father God, we come before You now, humbly asking for Your grace. You have promised that Your Word will not return to You void, and we ask You to remember that promise this morning, Father, that by Your Word, through Your Spirit, You may bring forth in abundance the fruits of righteousness to the praise of Your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said last Sunday, this is a difficult 
and therefore much debated passage. And, and most of the difficulties are actually in the section that's before us this morning, verses 3 through 9. And that means that at least in some respects, this is going to be a difficult sermon. I apologize up front. I'm going to try to lead us through some difficult terrain, and it is going to require some precise thinking. We're going to have to go slow, but not too slowly, so that we actually finish. And furthermore, it's not only that, that we're going to have to go slowly, but, but as we go, some of the conclusions that I'm going to try to lead you to, you need to know they are disputed. Not everyone agrees what to do with this text. And, and even some of uh, my favorite pastors and my favorite teachers disagree about what to do with some of the details of this text. So, so those who take seriously the Word of God can differ over how we interpret everything that's going on in this passage. But I hope to show you that despite the difficulties, before we are finished, you will see that even though you remain confused or maybe just unconvinced about some of the conclusions I'm going to try to lead you to, even if you remain confused, the author's point should be clear. Because whatever you do with the details, in the end, at the most basic foundational level, what the author is doing in these verses is obvious. The author is calling us once again by calling the Hebrews. He is calling them and he is calling us to draw near to the throne of grace. And to draw near confidently, knowing that there we will receive the grace and the help we need to go on to maturity. That's what this passage is. It is a call to approach God confidently for the mercy and the grace that we need to receive the grace to move on to maturity in the Christian life. And let's, let's see how we get there. To get there, as I said, we've, we've got to work through some difficulties. And, and there are really two primary difficulties in this text. One is theological, and the other is experiential. The, theo the theological question has to do with the perseverance of the saints. That is, this, this verse, or these verses force us to ask if it is possible for a true believer to lose his or her salvation. Because at first glance, it, it certainly seems like the author is describing true believers in verses 4 through 6. That's, that's the most natural, obvious reading of the text. But, if he's describing true believers, is he really suggesting that it is possible for those true believers to, to fall away and lose their salvation? That's the, that's the theological question that we must wrestle with as we wrestle with these verses. But there's also an experiential question. And, and the experiential question, obviously, has to do with our personal experience. For many people, when they, when they come to a text like this, these verses raise in their mind the possibility that their own future salvation might be an absolute impossibility. When they, when they come to these warning passages, they, they fear that they may have fallen away. And that therefore now they are beyond the reach of God's saving grace. There's no longer any hope left for them. And that is a terrifying prospect. 
I actually believe that that second question is much closer to the author's heart as he is writing these verses. But, but we need to address the first in order to get to a good answer to the second. And so we're going to start this morning, and we're actually going to spend most of our time this morning on the theological problem. And my hope is that by wrestling with the theological problem, we will come to see the hope that the author holds out to us when we face the fears of that experiential problem. So let's start with the theological problem. And let me begin by simply laying my cards on the table. I believe in what is called the perseverance of the saints. I believe in the perseverance of the saints because I believe the perseverance of the saints is clearly taught throughout the scriptures. Now let me offer a caveat. That does not mean that I believe in once saved, always saved, as that is commonly understood in our culture today. In our culture today, once saved, always saved means that because of something you did in the past, whether it was praying a prayer or whether it was making a confession or whether it was walking an aisle or signing a card or, or whatever it was, you did something in the past to sort of align yourself with Jesus. And now, regardless of what you do for the rest of your life, you are good. You are in. That is not what the scriptures teach. And that is not what the perseverance of the saints means. Rather, the perseverance of the saints means that God will invariably, without fail, by His immeasurable power, keep His people in faith until the end. All those who, whom God has called to new life in Christ will, by the power of His grace, persevere in that faith and in that new life for all eternity. None will fully or, or finally fall away. That's the perseverance of the saints. And, and I believe that that is clearly taught throughout the Scriptures. Jesus said that He will lose none of those given to Him by the Father. Paul said that all those whom the Father foreknew, He will finally glorify. Peter says that all those who have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead are being now kept by God's power through faith. And thus John could say in his first letter that those who go out from us were never of us because if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. This is the doctrine of, of perseverance and it is throughout the New Testament. Even in this letter, we have, we have seen that it is assumed by the author. Back in chapter 3, the, the author said that we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Those who, who share in Christ will stand firm in their faith to the end. And so, when we come to a passage like this, and, and when I'm called on to, to preach a passage like this, and that's one of the dangers of just preaching consecutively through books, you come to passages like this and you can't just skip over them, uh, you, you have to deal with it. And so when I come to a passage like this, and when I, when I have to preach on a passage like this, I, I tell you that, that I am asking, how can I read this passage in a way that is compatible with what I know the rest of the Scriptures teach? I'm looking for a way to read this passage that is compatible with the doctrine of perseverance, because I believe that perseverance is taught elsewhere in Scripture. And I want you to know that. I want you to know that's how I approach this text. And I want you to know that that is not intellectually dishonest. 
That, that is not ignoring the text or trying to make it say something that it doesn't say. On the contrary, that is actually how we ought to approach all Scripture. We, we approach this, this Scripture asking how can we read it in the context of the whole? How can we read it in a way that, that is compatible with everything that we know the Scriptures teach? This is both wise and virtuous. Imagine that you hear a report about someone who you have known well for a long time. Someone who, is, who has been your, your friend for, for many years, and you hear a report about them that simply doesn't fit with what you know about your friend and what you have known about them from your long history together. What would you do? Well, you should, when you hear a report like that, Ask if there is some other way to interpret the facts. You can't ignore the facts. You have to deal with the facts. But you can ask if the narrative that has been attached to those facts is actually true, or if the, if the facts might support another story. Now, if time proves that the report was actually true, that the, that the story was true, at some point you'll actually have to reconsider what you thought you knew about your friend. But at first, it is right and good for you to try to bring that report into accord with what you already know. This, this is loving. This is wise. And that's analogous to what we must do with the, the Scriptures. When we come to a text like this, if you believe that the rest of the Scriptures teach perseverance, then it makes sense that you try to bring this text into line. You, you ask yourself, is there a way to read this that's, that's in accord with what I already know? You can't ignore the text. You can't make it say what it doesn't say. But you do seek to read it in accord with what you already know. And so the question before us this morning is simply this. Is there a way to read this text that is in accord with what we believe the Scriptures teach about the perseverance of the saints? And I don't think you'll be surprised to know that I think there is. I believe there, there is a way to read this text in accord with the rest of the Scriptures, and I believe the key to resolving our theological problem is found in verse 3. Notice again what the author says. He says, This we will do if God permits. But this is clearly a reference to everything we looked at last Sunday. Last Sunday, we, we heard this call to go on to maturity. The, the author knows the Hebrews. He knows that they have become sluggish of hearing. He, he knows that they have, they have stopped living out their faith, and they are beginning to live like infants, unskilled in the word of, of righteousness. And he is calling them to, to leave behind that childishness, to leave behind their, their sluggishness, and to go on to maturity. But he says in verse 3 that it is only possible for them to go on to maturity if God permits. Now why? Why is it necessary for God to permit them to go on to maturity? That, I believe, is precisely the question that the author is answering in verses 4 through 6. It is only possible to go on to maturity because... It is impossible to restore to repentance those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and who have tasted the powers of the age to come. Those who have, who have done all of that can only be restored to repentance when they have fallen away if God permits. 
Now, of course, this is where the theological problem raises its head. We, we, we are forced to ask, is the author suggesting that, that these people whom he's describing might fall away and not be brought back? Is it possible that, that he is saying that there are true Christians, born-again believers, who can, who can fall away and lose their salvation? Now, many who hold to the perseverance of the saints, as I do, they try to avoid this conclusion by, by suggesting that the author isn't actually talking about true believers in verses 4 through 6. They, they suggest that rather that he's talking about people who have made a profession of faith, people who have joined themselves to the church, but whose profession is false and will ultimately be proved to be false. Now, we know that there are false professors in the church. There are those who, who make a false profession. There are those, as John tells us, who go out from us because they were never of us. But I want to suggest to you that it is highly unlikely, if not impossible, to read this text that way. It is highly unlikely that the author is describing false believers in verses 4 through 6. First, there are the descriptions themselves. Just, just look at the descriptions that he, that he gives us. And I don't have time to unpack each of these in detail, but, but what we see when we look at them is that, that yes, you know, we could bend over backwards and, and try to make these apply to non-Christians, but most naturally, everything the author says here is said of believers. It is possible that you could apply these same descriptions to, to unbelievers in the church, to false professors, but when you think about those who have been enlightened, it... it seems that he's talking about believers. In fact, he uses that exact phrase to, to talk about the Hebrews' own conversion in chapter 10. They were enlightened in the sense that they were converted, that they became true believers. It's, it's the same with the, the idea of tasting the heavenly gift. The, the heavenly gift, most likely, is salvation itself. They have participated in salvation. The eternal gift of God is eternal life. And they have tasted that. And, and tasted doesn't mean they just sampled it. It doesn't mean they just tried it a little bit. It means they have, they have tasted it in, in full. The author used that same phrase to say that Jesus has tasted death for us. He didn't just sample it. He didn't just experience it a little bit. He fully entered into death for our sake. Our salvation depends on it. And so these have tasted the heavenly gift. And not only have they tasted the heavenly gift, but they have shared in the Holy Spirit. And again, it's possible that you could say that an unbeliever had shared in the Holy Spirit. Certainly we, we see descriptions in the New Testament of, of people who have experiences with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus himself talks about those who, who prophesy and, and do miracles. And yet, he does not know them. Paul tells us about those who, who uh, can prophesy and can have faith and can understand all mysteries, and yet they have no love, the defining mark of the Holy Spirit. They gain nothing. They are nothing. And so, yes, it is possible that unbelievers could be said to share in the Holy Spirit. But to share in the Holy Spirit is such personal language. It's such intimate language. It, it strongly suggests that the, that the author has true believers in mind. Same with tasting the goodness of the Word of, of God. Yes, there's a sense in which unbelievers have, have tasted the Word of God as they sit under the preaching of the Word and the, the gathering of God's people. But to truly taste its goodness seems to be something that is much more likely ascribed to true believers 
And of course, it's the same with the powers of the age to come. We know, as I already said from Matthew chapter 7, that, that uh, unbelievers can experience the powers of the age to come. But it seems likely that he is describing believers. And so each of these descriptors, they, they, they most easily, they most naturally are applied to true believers, to, to those who have come to truly believe the gospel, to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ for their salvation. We, we could apply them to unbelievers, but when the descriptors begin to pile up, it becomes less and less likely that that's what the author is talking about. And so we have these descriptors, and they, they seem to point us in the direction of non-Christians, I mean of Christians, but it's possible to apply them to false believers. And so when we have the descriptors only, we, we don't have enough evidence to, to make a sure and certain conclusion. But there are other factors here. It's not just the descriptors. It's also those who are being described. Who is the author describing? He's describing the Hebrews. He's describing those to whom he's written. He's explaining uh, why it is impossible for them to be restored to repentance if they fall away. And so he is writing about the Hebrews. It is the Hebrews who have been enlightened. It is the Hebrews who have, who have tasted uh, of uh, the, uh, the Holy Spirit, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. It is the Hebrews that he is talking about, and we know that he believes the Hebrews to be true believers. He, he says it explicitly in verse 9. He says, but of you we, we expect better things. We expect things pertaining to salvation. And so the author is describing the Hebrews whom he believes to be true believers. And so when we add that to all the descriptures, it, it begins to tilt the, the, the scales strongly towards the fact that he's talking about true believers. And then there's the nature of the warning itself. The warning itself. What is the warning? The, the warning is that it is impossible for these people to be restored again to repentance. Well, it seems that you can only be restored again to repentance. It seems that your, your repentance can only be renewed if you had previously repented. If you had previously been in repentance and had now fallen away from it. And so the context, it seems to me, and again, there are those who disagree with me. But as I read this text, I have to believe that the author is talking about true believers. This is a warning for those who have truly professed faith in Jesus Christ. The author is warning the Hebrews, whom he knows to be true believers, that if they fall away, it will be impossible for them to be restored again to repentance. That's what's going on here. True believers are being warned that if they fall away, it will be impossible for them to be restored again to repentance. But how in the world is such a reading of the text compatible with the doctrine of perseverance? I believe that it is. And to, to see this, we need to understand at least two things. We need to understand what the author means by fall away, and we need to understand what he means by impossible. So let's take the first one first. What, what does the author mean by fall away? And, and you need to know that this is actually the only place in the New Testament that this word is used. So the word he uses here that's, that's translated fall away is, is not a word that's used anywhere else in the New Testament. It is used in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, but it's used in so many different ways that it's impossible to know from the author's word choice alone what he means. 
And so we have to look at the, the context to, to determine what does he mean when he says fall away? And so what does the context show us? Well, as I said last Sunday, the author's concern in this passage is that the Hebrews have become dull or sluggish of hearing. And that means that they have stopped living out their faith. For, for a Hebrew, for, for a Jew, like the author of this letter, hearing was not just an intellectual exercise. It, it was not just some sort of cognitive reception, but to truly hear is to hear and obey. To, to hear and to, to live accordingly. This is why you can have ears to hear and not hear. And yet the, the author is, is saying not only that they have, they have become dull in their understanding, but they have become sluggish in their lives. They have become sluggish in their obedience. They are no longer living in accord with their profession of faith. They are, they are no longer walking as becomes the followers of Christ. And that is exactly what he means by fall away. They have fallen away from obedience or they have fallen away from repentance. That's why he says that their repentance needs to be restored again. Because they were repentant, but now they have fallen away from that repentance. They have, they have laid it aside. They are no longer daily turning from their sins to God with the full purpose of endeavoring after obedience. They are no longer concerned with living out their faith, but rather they are going their own way. They are doing their own thing. They are living instead like infants, unskilled in the word of righteousness. So I want to suggest to you that the, the author actually sees the Hebrews as those who have already fallen away. And we actually see that in verse 6. Now, the Pew Bibles, the Bibles that you have in front of you, I believe that they, they translate verse 6 as if they then fall away. They, they translate it as a, as a conditional. They, they translate it as, you know, so those who have done this, if they do this, then this will be the result. And, and that makes sense logically, but it's not actually what the author writes. There is no condition in what the author writes. I mean, this is actually reflected in the newer versions of the ESV. And that's one of the complications here. So if you have an old ESV, it says, if they then fall away. But if you have a newer ESV, it says, and they fall away. And that's actually truer to the original text. Because it's just a list of participles. For people for whom this is true, they have been enlightened, they have tasted, and they have fallen away. So he is describing the Hebrews' experience. They have fallen away. But if they have fallen away, and it is now impossible for them to be restored to repentance, we have to ask, what does the author mean by impossible? Isn't the warning too little too late? If, if they've already fallen away, and if it's already impossible? Well, no. Yes, this does mean that now, presently, uh, it is impossible for the Hebrews to be restored to repentance, but that does not mean the warning is superfluous. Because what does the author mean by impossible? I want to suggest to you that we know what the author means by what is impossible from verse 3. What does he say? This we will do if God permits. It is the key to the whole thing. 
We will go on to maturity only if God permits because it is impossible for you to now be restored to repentance. It's the same dynamic that we see in, in Jesus' teaching after his conversation with the rich young ruler. Do you remember what he says there? He says, it is impossible for a rich person to be saved. And then what does he say? But with, man, with God, all things are possible. Who is it that does impossible things? It is our God who does impossible things. Who can't do impossible things? Us. <laughs> and so it is impossible for us to restore ourselves or to restore one another to repentance after we have fallen away. But the author's whole point is that this impossible thing we will do if God permits. That's the point of what's going on here. And I, I know not everyone sees it that way, but, but that, is, to me, seems so clear. This we will do if God permits. See, what we have to understand is that the, the foundation of our assurance that we will persevere is not in us. Our confidence is not that it is inherently impossible for us to, to fall away from our faith. It is all too possible. We are weak. And we are prone to wander, as the hymn says. And so what is the foundation of our assurance? The foundation of our assurance is that God will not fail to bring to completion the good work that he has begun. Our assurance is that God will do all that he has promised to do for those whom he has called to himself. Our promise is that Jesus will not lose any of those who have been given to him. A believer is sustained in faith only by the ongoing power of God. It is impossible for a believer to fully and finally fall away from God because God will not allow it, not because it is inherently impossible. God will keep those whom he has called to himself by his power. That is our assurance, and that's what the author is getting at here. You see, however you, you understand this text, this much ought to be clear. The author does not want the Hebrews to think that they can simply set aside their repentance for a time. That, that during this difficult season, when they are facing persecution, or when the cost of following Jesus are, are mounting, they cannot simply set aside their repentance at this time and think they can pick it back up again when things are more settled. Setting aside your repentance is no small thing. In fact, notice how he describes it. To, to set aside your repentance, to, to fall away from your repentance is to crucify again the Son of God to your own harm and to hold Him up to open contempt. A person can't just do that and then when, when things get easier, pick it up again. This is the point. Hear this. If you set aside your repentance, it will be impossible for you to take it up again. That's what he's warning the Hebrews. He's saying, listen, you can't just walk away and think you'll come back at your own leisure. You can't just set aside your, your repentance and think you'll pick it back up when it's convenient for you. You can't go off and sow your wild oats and think, well, I'll come back when, when it's easier to follow Jesus. That's the point. He, he's not addressing a theological question for its own sake. He is warning those whom he knows have become sluggish of hearing that they are in mortal danger. 
that they have placed their souls at risk and that there is nothing they can do. Their only hope is to cry out to God for mercy, for help in their time of need, that he might permit them to go on to maturity, that he might permit them to be restored again to their repentance. And that is exactly true of us this morning. If you are here this morning and you are considering setting aside your repentance for a time. Maybe because it's getting just too hard or you're just tired or, or, or some sin seems too good. If you are considering setting aside your repentance for a time, you need to hear this warning. You need to hear the author say, if you go that route, there is nothing you can do to bring yourself back. You don't have it in you. And so if you are being tempted to set aside your repentance... You must approach the throne today for mercy, for the help that you need in your time of need, that you might be strengthened, that you might be renewed, and that you might go on to maturity in the Christian life. That's the call of this text. It's the same as the call we heard last week. If we have become sluggish of hearing, there's nothing we can do about it, but God can do impossible things. And of course, that's the answer to the experiential question, isn't it? If you fear that, that you have fallen away, if you fear that you have done something to, to set yourself beyond the reach of God's grace, what you need to know is that nothing in this text says that a repentant sinner will ever be turned away. You won't be able to renew your repentance, but if God renews it, He will not fail to honor it. And so if you are here this morning, and if you are repentant, if you are here this morning and you acknowledge your sins before God, and if you have renounced them with grief and hatred, and if you are even now turning from them to God with the, the full purpose of endeavoring after new obedience, then that in itself is a sign that God has already done impossible things in your life. That repentance is His gift to you. It was His gift to you the first time, when you were dead in your sins and He made you alive, and it is your gift to you today when He has renewed you to your repentance. And if He has renewed you to repentance, if you are repentant this morning, then you can know this, that He will honor your repentance with the free gift of eternal life. For it is by faith that we are saved. It is by faith that we receive every spiritual blessing in Christ. It is by faith alone, faith given to us by God, that we are called truly Christians. So that's what this text is about. That's what this text is for. It is a reminder to you that if you are going to go on to maturity in the Christian life, you are going to get there only if God permits. Only if He allows it. And therefore, do not arrogantly pursue obedience in your own strength and the power of your own flesh, but rather humble yourself today. Approach His throne and ask for the mercy you need. Ask for the help you need. Ask for the grace you need, knowing that it is only by His immeasurable power that you will get to where He has called you to go. But also knowing this, that if you approach Him, He will not fail to give you everything you need, for it is His delight to give you His Holy Spirit. He will give you the power you need that you might go on to maturity 
And because that is at the heart of the gospel, that is why we can call even a warning like this good news. Do you believe that? Let's believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear your gospel even in this warning, Father. May we, may we not allow Satan to use it as a tool to undermine our faith, but rather may we allow your spirit to use it as a tool to lead us to your throne of grace, where in Christ we might receive every spiritual blessing. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen.